From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. This podcast is sponsored by Dakota, the design center of the Americas. Dakota is South Florida's top showroom destination for interior design resources and inspiration. On Thursday, February 7th, Dakota will be hosting its annual Winter Market, a one-day event crafted specifically with designers in mind and packed with insightful talks from industry leaders and innovators, plus CEUs, panel discussions, book signings, and tons of networking opportunities. Visit dakota.com to learn more. That's D-C-O-T-A dot com. Or you can register directly at dakotawintermarket2019.eventbrite.com. And now, on with the show. My guests this week are Anna and Greg Brockway, co-founders of Cherish and Dicasso. Greg, Anna, so nice to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. I feel like I'm with the Terry Gross of the home industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, aren't you nice to say? Those are, those are big shoes, Terry Gross. I'm, I'm a huge fan, but uh, Me too. I, I, I aspire <laughs> to that level of greatness. So thank you for that. That's very kind. I, I am delighted to have you, you both here. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit in the past, but I wanted to take people through the, the early stages of uh, two relative outsiders coming into the coming into the home industry from from different backgrounds and we'll talk about each of your backgrounds in a in a moment um, and suddenly catapulting a, a, a brand to, to very much a, a leadership position in the in the furniture world and and how you've done that in a in a relatively short period of time so is there a is there a personal connection that that either of you had to the to the home industry? Yeah, so I grew up um, with a dad in the industry. So my dad was with Baker Furniture for many years. Okay, um, and so I grew up with you know him leaving to go to High Point and designers coming in and out of the house and all that sort of stuff. So oh, really? I grew okay. up I grew up around the design industry in that way. Got it. Um, and then. Um, he later went to go work. We, we lived in San Francisco, so went to get work for Michael Taylor as well. So that was sort of my world growing up. And um, Got it. Okay. really, like, always have had just a love of beautiful things and also an appreciation, particularly for antiques and vintage pieces. Um, for a long time, I worked for Levi's, which, of course, is heavily rooted in the vintage side of the business. I mean, that's really right. sort of where... Um, much of the brand value comes from is the appreciation for the vintage part of their business and, and the history so, and, the history yeah. and yeah. just kind of like what's prettier than a pair of old 501s you know <laughs> and so um, I think all of that combined with just being kind of a compulsive redecorator of our home inspired us to kind of get this started um, and and so much of it actually was based on personal experience okay. um, as a shopper in the industry um, right. and somebody who just has always followed it and loved it. Do you want to talk a little bit about Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a different background. I come from more of a tech and finance background, but um, like on my, my father was a, um, an antiquities dealer for many years. So okay. um, it's been a great opportunity for I mean, And I go to the shows here in New York to see him and doing his thing. And it's been over the last 20 or 30 years to really see how the industry has evolved and how mm -hmm. the 
growing importance of technology and online distribution and you know customer acquisition and the whole the whole the whole business right. his his side of the business has has changed and I think um, being able to bring all these different threads together with Cherish you know honest background my background our experiences moving four times in three years having lots of pieces that didn't fit that right. you know Anna would say oh this doesn't fit and I would say oh my gosh what do you mean it doesn't fit what are we going to do with this <laughs> thing and trying consignment stores and trying online trying Craigslist and finding all of them lacking in some way just kind of led to the decision um, six years ago to let's try and create a better way for for people to buy and sell furniture decor and, and art and that was really the the genesis of of cherish it was sitting in our in our living room saying what are we going to do with this um, and should we actually try and turn it into a business and we started very modestly and we've been thrilled at how it's kind of grown and evolved and um, changed over the last few years. I think one of the biggest changes for us that happened relatively early on was, as Greg described it, it really started as a way for me to get rid of all the stuff that I compulsively buy. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> like so was, I didn't want to yeah, say, Anna, right. but I, I did understand that there was a lot of merchandise yes. that needed to be moved. And Admitting it's the first step, right? <laughs> okay. So, you know, it really started as a person-to-person -person idea, which is I have things that I don't need that right. are I spend a lot of money on and are fantastic and in great condition, and somebody else might have the same, and how do we connect? Um, and so that was the idea of a person-to-person -person marketplace. And then very and, quickly it changed. And at the time when you were first talking mm -hmm. about this, when this idea was incubating, what was the landscape? So if you had furniture that you couldn't take with you to your new home, yeah. how would you go about disposing of it or, or getting into, into someone else's hands? Well, I tried every single way. Um, <laughs> you know, it started okay. with uh, eBay, okay. uh, consignment stores, right, and then Craigslist, Craigslist, right, um, and then like Give it calling away. your neighbors, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sort yeah. of thing. Okay, um, and I guess what we found is is that in both cases, um, like with with um, consignment shops, um, they needed more scale. They needed more um, shoppers to successfully sell their stuff. So you, you know, and then and they take fifty percent. And you get the stuff in there, and it, it takes a while to sell it because they're limited by the foot traffic that was around them at the time. Right. And eBay had the problem of not helping with shipping um, and the logistics, which is a big part of the business. So, yeah. like, I bought a dining room table from an old lady who was moving to an old folks' home in North Carolina and had to figure out in three days how to get the piece picked up and sent to us in San Francisco. And by that time, it was like, oh, well, we should really start a business to help yeah. fix this because yeah. this is bananas. And so that, those were the options that were available, and they were really limited. So, and, and where were both of you in your careers at the time? So, so Greg, you had started and, and later sold some, some tech businesses, yes? Yeah, so um, I've been a uh, founder a couple times. Okay. Twice it's worked out really well, one time it, it, it hasn't. And I had just um, started and had my business acquired uh, called TripIt, which is a mobile travel app. Right. And I was... Um, looking for something new and exciting to, to do. I had a non-compete. I couldn't do anything else directly in, in, that space. in the travel space. Okay. And Anna had had this idea for Cherish for quite some time, and it just felt like a, an interesting time to, 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 to try and, and build it. So we pulled a, f a few of the folks that I've worked with together as co-founders. Um, my uh, former head of technology and another another friend from from my Hotwire days, and um, and got it going. I mean, day one was very modest. It was thirty five items on the site, half of which came from our house. <laughs> half of those I didn't really want to sell because I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> 
so it was an internal debate going yeah. on around that. But well. uh, was it really okay. a debate? You know, it was, that. It was really yeah. great. Within a, a day or two, actually, we sold something, and we said, "Well, I, I think there's something here." Right. Yeah. And that was really gratifying. And, and from there, we started to turn it into a proper business. And you know, one thing led to another. So you so you knew how to how to create the website, and and so you knew that the tech sort of back of house. But what did you know about the logistics of to your earlier point, Anna, of sort of actually getting furniture from point A to point B? Yeah, it was scary. I mean, that's, right? that's, that's actually that's the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's something that we learned our way into. We've also hired some people who come from backgrounds that have that. Okay. To be frank, my dad was super helpful. He's like, here's who you call, because he knew how to do this from um, his days at Michael Taylor and Baker, right. you know, who okay. were the people they, they used. Um, and so some of that um, got us going, but then we, you, know, you sort of have to bring in experts to help out. Yeah. I think one I mean, of the most interesting things that happened is you know, probably, I don't know, what do you think, like three or four months into the site being open, we started um, getting calls from what we call professional sellers. So Mm -hmm. um, those were, you know, vintage stores, antique shops, consignment stores, people who had large lots of wonderful things and were looking to get um, more exposure for them, more audience, more potential buyers. And and then very quickly the site um, started to become a venue for um, small businesses to come and list their items for sale. And listing on the site's free, so okay. it's, it's a simple, easy start for people. Um, we have a really easy process that we've worked on to make the photographing and listing your items as fast and as simple as possible. And so we were able to get that up and running, and then that really helped to scale the business because we went from, you know, an individual may have two to three items to list, maybe four, um, versus a store which will have you know large quantities and and that was really helped us with the supply side of the business but i think i think it's a good question because you know my my previous um, companies being in the travel industry i mean delivering a ticket electronically right is pretty straightforward yes. delivering a, a sofa from you know a, an individual seller in st louis to a, a buyer in los angeles and doing that at scale 10 or twenty thousand times a month that's a whole different mm-hmm. um that's a whole different set of challenges so yeah. so i think in making the appropriate investments early on in how to be successful at shipping furniture at scale um, with all of the stuff that happens around that was was actually quite quite complicated and and did require a pretty significant investment in technology and customer support and how do you how do you handle problems and bringing know. in people with wisdom yeah We've we, done this before. one of our first um, yeah one of the first people we brought on board was uh, Tony who um, has a has a background in in shipping and logistics mm-hmm. it was just very clear that you know it, Building a business successfully um, helps if you identify the hard problems first right. and start to solve the hard problems first. And shipping and fulfillment and logistics was something we just knew we had to get right or the business would never go anywhere. Yeah. And it's been an ongoing process. Like, And you know, technology helps with that. Expanding relationships help with that. Being able to do things you know, at higher volumes actually creates challenges, but also creates opportunities to negotiate better deals with, with people. So it's been a... You know, one of those things that we continue to chip away at and try and make better every, frankly, every day. Okay. It's an okay. Ongoing, ongoing challenge. Well, and, and, it, and it seems that way. I feel like there are incremental improvements in the site that I sort of notice all the all the time. Oh, yeah. So it right. I mean, it seems like I'm things glad are. You're noticing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, no, absolutely. We're working I mean, it, hard on it. It, yeah. it sort of gets easier and easier and quicker and and, yeah. and quicker. So yeah. I mean, it, it it's interesting from that perspective. So in the beginning, you were self-funding. I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah we're in the yeah. living room. We're getting this all together. 
we're bringing in some tech dining friends. Room. Dining yeah. room. We're in the dining room yeah. making it happen. Okay. <laughs> and and so at, at, at what point did you realize, okay, in order to get this logistics side of it going and, and probably some additional engineers, I'm guessing, when did you realize you might sort of need to raise some, some capital? Yeah. So uh, we have raised capital from friends, family, family offices, um, a few smaller VCs. I mean, we're not... Um, like some people start businesses that look at raising money as a sign of success. Like for right. us, that's a necessary right. evil to growing the business. Sure. So we are, you know, major investors in the company. And every time we have to go out and raise growth capital, we continue to invest in the company okay. ourselves. Yeah. But it was probably, I don't know, about a year into it, we realized this this is a bigger opportunity than we can afford to fund on our own. And we went out and and raised some. Um, seed or we call it pre-seed right. money okay. from a handful of people that have worked with me in the past on other entrepreneurial ventures and mm-hmm. they're all um, people we've known um, for quite a long time and it's uh, we, we're very fortunate to have a supportive friendly um, group of investors who are super excited about the design industry I mean that's a really important part of it so a lot of them sort of like this space and, mm-hmm. and find it interesting and yes and yeah I don't want to say it's a vanity investment but they are people who are generally interested in design right and, yeah okay well and it's, it's interesting so I talk to a lot of uh, startup CEOs and, yeah. and they come into this space, the home space, and they think it's very disruptible on a host of levels. A lot of antiquated systems, right? And companies that have been doing things a certain way for a long time. And um, so some fresh faces showing up with both sort of a technology background and a marketing background and, and just a passion for the industry mm-hmm. can really sort of quickly m- make a make a name and and, um, and grow to, to quite a to quite a scale uh, as you have part of what's made the site so successful it, it certainly seems is the curation yeah part of it it's really important right yeah so, so tell me how you were managing that in the beginning yeah I mean honestly it's something we had some really healthy debates over I mean I think you know Sorry, Greg, but I was, let's, let's Greg. Just, let's, I was wrong. Let's just, let's oh, just okay. get that out there. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's clear that up. Let's. Yeah. So Greg felt that, um, so in marketplaces, right, you're kind of standing in the middle of the seesaw, and on one side you have supply, and on the other side you have demand. And so one of the things you're always doing is trying to balance those two sides appropriately. But the first thing you have to start with is supply. You need inventory right. to, to, to even get started. And so the natural tendency is to take everything, right? So you go to some lady's house and she's like, has three beautiful pieces and then two broken down, you know, sectionals from her playroom. And she wants right. to give you everything. Sure. Um, and you have to say no. And, and it's hard. And if you're looking for lots of inventory, the natural tendency is to say yes, because it's more items. Um, and so we had a healthy debate about this, but I always felt that solutions for really used um, not what I would consider fine and fabulous, chic and unique pieces. Right. Th- that's what Craigslist is for. That's what um, Facebook Marketplaces is mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. What we were trying to do was to create something that was curated and really had a strong point of view about style, quality, um, and condition. Mm-hmm. And so we really looked at every single piece, and we still do. Um, as they come in and make a determination as to whether or not we think it's a fit. And we reject a good portion of what's submitted to us. I, I would imagine we would have to. Yeah. And otherwise, it just becomes um, it becomes junky. Sure. And I think why people love Cherish, partly, um, but a big part of it, is that they can rely upon it for really delightfully stylish, fun, um, chic things. And so 
it means you have to say no sometimes, which is often hard. Yeah, it, but yeah. it's an important part of it. It doesn't all have to be expensive. I mean, it's not right. a price. It's not a price thing. It's a quality and uniqueness thing. Is it, is it the question we ask? Is does this item justify the cost of shipping? It um, is behind it. You know, it, from a business perspective, you can't afford to ship low volume low value really big items it's sort right. of why pet food companies who ship pet food didn't didn't last very long you, just, you know there's you know, can't make a business shipping toilet yeah. paper you know there's, there's just certain <laughs> things that don't that don't work and so we i still for, mourn the loss of pets.com yeah. so <laughs> that dog was a close yeah. friend to me so yes. i i have a good friend who created that yeah we know the guy behind so, the dog that, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, right? we do. Yeah. i yes, keep lovely. i keep that sock puppet in my in my office <laughs> to sort puppet, of remind yeah. me that, it's a little scary. that yeah yeah get too caught up in these things yeah, but, you know building yeah. a business it's about finding the balance between what you want to do and what makes business sense and i think um what's nice about Working in the home space is it, it is so big that you can afford to pick and choose, and we can be more choosy and, yeah. and, and have a point of view with with Cherish, and frankly with the Casso, um, even more so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so you mentioned that so the, the the scale started to really tip for you when the professionals started reaching yeah, out to you and, and and offering you inventory, yeah. right? And and so in the beginning, sort of, uh, how were you able to sort of look through all of their inventory? Were they sending you images, or did you? Yeah. So um, the listing process is all online. So um, you can either do it through our app or upload stuff just right on the website. We also have a bulk uploading process for people who have large lots. Right. And yeah, we look at every single item, and we have a team of people now who that's what they do. Yeah. Um, I will say with professional sellers, it's the curation process is easier because they've already kind of gone through an edit mm-hmm. um, in terms of selecting and picking what they like. So versus when you're dealing with private sellers, you kind of get a mixed bag. And still we get about 10% of our inventory from private sellers. And so that's a very important po- component of what we what we curate as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. But it's okay. all done visually. Yeah. In, the, in the early days, yeah, yeah, we had some great stories. We would go to people's houses and we would find remarkable things. Yeah. <laughs> remarkably exciting And maybe not so remarkable. Things, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm sure that was yeah. challenging. I mean, it's it, interesting. It, as you were saying, it, it's hard to tell people that, no, you're not really interested in all the things that they yeah. would like to give it you, is. right? But we had one seller, we went to their house and going through their basement helped them find a store of gold bricks. It was yeah. quite he had he's like oh there's my gold bricks we were like oh there they are <laughs> wow, <they're>, wow. <laughs> there do, they are doing that at scale I didn't know where he put those yeah you know <laughs> doing that at scale it very quickly became obvious that that wasn't gonna right that was yeah. not the path that we were gonna create the broadest selection of, right. of things that we thought we needed in order to be able to afford to bring people to the site and pay you know pay for visitors and drive traffic and get the conversion wheel spinning. I mean, making those matches, you need a lot of inventory, you need a lot of buyers, and then people start to find the, like the, the exactly the things that they're looking for. It's in a weird way sort of like a dating service. Like you need lots of different people yes. on both sides. You need lots of different products and you need lots of different buyers so people can find those connections because they're looking for very specific things. Right. And so scale really matters both on the inventory side and on the audience side and I think that that's always I was talking about standing in the middle of a seesaw that's that's really what we've been focused on for the past you know six years of working on this brand is how do we develop both of those things in lockstep and in synergy with each other so that they're feeding one another does that make any sense yeah yeah yeah. no absolutely well and so talking about the the early challenges. So the technology side, the logistics side, the curation side we've talked about. You, you mentioned the, the customer acquisition part of it. Yeah. 
tell me a little bit about your, your sort of strategy that you implemented there and, and how did you sort of build awareness and, and, and how did you build traffic and bring people to you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so my background's in marketing and, and in really mostly in branding, mm-hmm. um, coming from the fashion business. So I think one of the things we started doing early on was um, uh, really making sure that the voice and the point of view for the brand were distinct. And so, and that was important in making sure that we stood out from the other options that were out there. So, and then telling that story um, through media. So basically we do a lot of um, kind of event-based stuff Mm -hmm. that we then broadcast on the site. So as an example, we went to flea markets and went shopping and sold items live on Instagram and um, and then also sold them live on the site. And when you go through a flea market with a team of cameras, it gets a lot of attention amongst people who are vintage fanatics and really want to know about your site. So sure. that was a great way for us to get the word out. Yeah. And then we would bring reporters with us and writers and editors with us so that they could help cover the story too, because who doesn't want to go shopping at the Pasadena Rose Bowl or you know, um, Round Top down in Texas? And so we sort of did these like fun excursions um, that really helped to publicize what it was we were doing, which was a focus on vintage and mm. one-of-a-kind items. And, and, and I think brought people along on what is so fun about buying vintage, which is the discovery process with us. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the points of view the brand has always had that I, I think has made it distinct within the um, design industry is we've always wanted to be curated and chic, but also have a, um, an open-heartedness to mm. the brand and a sense of fun. And so our way that we say it is, for our shopper, we want to be ahead of her, but not above her. So we want her to think of us as a place to come to find what's new and surprising and to be inspired, but not to do it in a way that feels judgy. And so shopping trips and things that include other people and community-based events have been a really important part of that for us. Well, and and that definitely, sorry, go ahead, Greg. No, I was just going to say, um, building an audience really helps when the product sells itself. And having starting with sort of unique, one-of-a-kind items, we get over right. 2,000 items a day live on the site, is a great way for people to want to come back and look at us again and again. So yeah, It's a little so, bit of a habit. So our, our model is get people to <laughs> yeah. through through one of the vehicles Anna was talking about to come and check us out and then get into our email program and, and we bring people back. So the paid traffic to our site is actually relatively modest, but really the goal is 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 to focus on organic unpaid ways of people to, you know bringing people back again and again and again and again starting you know having so many cool new items on the site every day is a, is a really nice advantage yeah i mean um, coming from from the fashion business where there's a line release every you know 8 weeks 6 weeks um they chained out the front aisle display yeah i know zara goes faster but that's the traditional <laughs> model right, right? and yeah. then you think we change our front aisle every hour <laughs> with you know 200 to 400 new items arriving the idea of people kind of coming back to check in to see what's come in and the um, the draw of that and kind of the habit that that creates is great for us and, and, is, and fun it is one shopper. of the it is one of the biggest challenges I think any startup faces in the home space is is it's a relatively infrequent purchase you right know, people are not buying sofas every day it's so um, so how, how you how you solve that I think is one of the biggest challenges for a lot of the new direct-to-consumer um, sites that are coming out coming up in the home space well, and so uh, that's interesting that you that you point to that because that that often is perceived as one of the big challenges, right? Uh-huh. So they're going to make this really big decision, and and then you're not going to see them again right. for, for a year. So you have figured out how to get all these people coming back 
sounds like you're forming some some expensive habits for some people, <laughs> right? Are uh, not so expensive. Well, no, I mean, uh, there, <laughs> there's a range. there's a lot you can buy for not a, not a lot on, on Cherish, but but you did make it fun and yeah. you did make it compelling and you did you did the retail equivalent of changing out the window display or changing out the front of the store yeah. very rapidly and, and frequently. Uh, and then you're keeping in touch. Um, and you've also, more recently, you've added a, a lot of technology. The the AR mm-hmm. side of it mm-hmm. um, is is really powerful now mm-hmm. what what you've what you've built out as as far as the ability to see products in rooms and and all of that tell me tell me a little yeah, bit no. about about that yeah the technology side is really important i mean the um augmented reality we were, we were one of the first brands to have it in our mobile app and that's been super super successful and just the way we think about technology is it's not really technology for technology's sake it's right. like it's technology to make it more useful to it's solve to make, a problem to solve a problem yeah and the nice thing about where we're at and we're able to access a lot of of talented technology people, but we try and put it to work in ways that may or may not be, be obvious. AR is a very obvious application mm-hmm. of technology, and we're super happy with how that people have responded to that and are using it. It really solves that problem of how is this going to look amongst the other things that I already have. Like it's just ideal for that. So I think it's just the, the visualization exercise is hard yeah. for most people, for, and so even designers, you know, like they use CAD and they have all these great tools that they right. can use to help bring things to life and. Um, and so the idea was just to make that simpler and hopefully get people to take some few risks because they didn't feel so scared. So like buy the velvet couch in purple. <laughs> it's really going to look okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because a lot of people are afraid to, to press that button. I, I think it's going to be one of those things that in two or three or four years, people are uncomfortable not using it to, to solve these, to, to make these decisions. So right. it's one of these growing things. But, you know, I think that's a sexy application of technology. It's super clear. A lot of what we do is unsexy stuff that you don't even <laughs> know about. So whether it's um, making advances around personalization so that what shows up in your email is more like the things that you may have bought in the past or the things that other people like you tend to like. And, try right. and you know, right. when you've got 300,000 things on offer on just Cherish alone, um, you have to be smart about what you show to people and, and try and anticipate what they're looking for. So there's a lot of technology that, that underlies that. Um, we talked a little bit about the shipping problems. Mm-hmm. Like we could not be doing what we were doing if we were trying to just throw bodies at it. There is absolutely no way we could manage the network of shippers that we have, the partnerships that we have, the volume of inventory, the issues that come up. Like all of it would just fall apart if we weren't investing in the in the underlying technology platform to support the 10,000 sellers that we that we have. So um, yeah, it's, I think it's what what's been um, helpful for us is to be making those investments along the way. I and mean, that's the other thing that I think a lot of people don't appreciate about technology is it's never done. And it's never right. quite good enough. And right. there's always more that you can do. And as you grow, there's more that you have to do to, to, to avoid having to just add more and more and more people. Like we have a relatively small team for the size of the business. And um, and yet I think it does a better job than if we just you know scaled with people. Mm-hmm. Um, technology also doesn't make as many mistakes usually. Although when, right. it, when it does... It's ugly. It's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
At what point did so we, we start off and we're sort of a consumer to consumer business, yeah. right? We're sort of connecting these people who have the product to people who want product, and then eventually some some people with larger inventories come on board. When did the design community sort of come along and say, "Hey, this is this is great"? I mean, I know you we were saying you did some events and you and you very quickly did get this reputation as being very fun and people wanted to engage with you. Yeah. When did the design community sort of often slow to to adapt? When did they come along? And, um, and join you well in terms of interior designers early um you know i love interior designers there's nobody more fun for me to go to events with and spend time with i just it's a such a fun lovely community yeah so I'm, that's how i feel too love spending time with it um and and with the people in it i i i feel like interior designers um share my passion for shopping and they will go anywhere that they can to find something great. Right. And so very early on, they found us and started um, buying things. And we didn't always know who they were <laughs> at the time. You know, it's just a sale on the site. Right. Um, but we, we started tracking it and understanding that. Um, and also designers for us have been a great source of inventory because they always have leftovers from projects or a client who's moving and they have things to sell as well. So yeah. it's really been a great relationship for us both on a buying and on a selling side. Um, and to Greg's point about episodic buying, one of the wonderful things about designers is they're always buying. <laughs> so so they really are our MVPs on the site and who we consider to be the, you know, um, kind of the ideal customer right. for, um, for our products. So um, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to custom tailor the site and our ex- um, and their designer's experience on it, specifically for them, um, to really maximize that relationship. Go ahead. Yeah, and we uh, relaunched our trade program um, uh, last fall right. um, after we really st- spent more time and asked them what they were looking for and what they, what they needed. And it's really dramatically changed the trajectory of growth within our buying community to skew it towards interior designers. So now interior designers actually see a differentiated price. So we support two-tier pricing, which is, okay. I think, a growing thing within, within the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also higher levels of service and and, um, and and they can put things on hold for client approval, which general shoppers cannot. Right. Okay. So there's all kinds of special benefits we're um, providing, and more even more that we want to bring to the site to to um, like dedicated customer service, so like a like a bat phone just for the <laughs> into yes. our you know they, they, because, they would appreciate because that. Every, yeah. you know they need that yeah. because they have a client to answer to. Um, and you know so so but, there's a lot we're exploring. Yeah, on we that just front. launched a. You know, they, they want little things. They want the ability to decide whether or not to put a price on a tear sheet. You know, so right. just a lot of little things going into making it a more user-friendly um, uh, shopping platform for the design community. Yeah, is, is been in it. And the and the site. Yeah, and and we're, we've talked a lot about Cherish. Let, we're in a minute, we're going to segue to when Dicasso comes sure. along and sort of the, the need for that. Um, the the site offers the ability to make an offer, right? right. So so part of it is you've you've kept mm-hmm. you've maintained this sort of ability to mm-hmm. haggle or mm-hmm. right or to, or to deal yeah. a little bit, which is what a lot of people love about going mm-hmm. to uh, some of the marketplaces you described. Um, tell me how that works. So. Um, it really started because when we first launched the site, almost immediately we got an email into our, you know, help at Cherish line, and it said, "Which I, was me? Which was you? Which was actually it was me?" Was <laughs> and it was like, "I'd like to buy this bench, but instead of paying, you know, four hundred, I I want to pay three fifty. 
my girlfriend was selling the bench. I knew that she would take three fifty for it. So, Got but it. I called okay. her and she said yes. You know, yeah. and so we put the deal together and 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 it just kept happening. Like literally, I was getting four or five emails a day People saying, reaching I want to do this. And I was like, oh, yeah. I get it. This is what you guys want to do. Right. And so then we started to build the technology to support that, which is actually sort of complicated to build that um, because we do pre-verify every offer before it's listed so that we know that it's really going to come through. Um, and so checking credit cards and things ping-ponging back and forth and all of that is a big part of what, when Greg was talking about making technology investments, we did. But it's also a good example. I mean, that's behavior that people do in the offline world today. Yeah. You know, you go to a flea market, you haggle. You know, you go to a, you know, if you're right. on Craigslist, yeah. you, know, the, the, you, you list it for 100, the person says they want to buy it, they show up with 50 bucks. That's just the way it works. <laughs> and um, that's not necessarily what we want to replicate with Cherish, but mm -hmm. the ability for people to go back and find the market clearing price on an, on an item is something that technology can make better. So we, we think this is an example of looking at how people want to interact using technology in a useful way to, to, to bring it to life. And so the majority of things on Cherish do have an offer um, when they sell, have an offer involved. Not, 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 certainly not everything. I'm always surprised it's not everything because that's right. what I would do. But right. um, yeah, it's an important part of the process. I think it, part of it too is unique to our space in that, you know, up until we launched a, a pink book, which I'll talk about in a second, we don't, nobody knows what anything's really worth, right? Because yeah. it's like, I don't know. Like, so... So if there's no set retail price. It's like you have in the new world, for example, a newly made item world. So um, to Greg's point, that allows people to find what that market clearing price is. And now we're starting to share that through um, a section of our site called the Cherish Pink Book. Which is so fabulous, <laughs> showing what like things it. have sold yeah, for. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so, tell, us, so tell us how that got started. So, because... so it's kind of modeled after the, after the idea of the Kelly Blue Book. And it's, it's pink because our logo is kind of a corally pink, and okay. and because and I love pink. But anyways, <laughs> um, and so the idea was that you would be able to um, identify or describe an object and find out what similar items have sold for on the site and what the clearing price was for that. And that's been really helpful. We we don't show if there was a net price on it. We mm -hmm. show what the um, listed price was and, and don't show the net discount. So we're able to preserve the privacy of designers Okay. Um, because that's one thing we know. Um, vintage is traditionally a markup opportunity for them and we want, right. we want it to be. Mm -hmm. So um, that's another example of a place where we um, made some adjustments to support the trade community and that's been in place for a while. But it's really, I think, the only great place to go online and find out what things sell for. And it's super helpful to our um, to our sellers because when they're outsourcing, it gives them a sense of what they should be paying in wholesale So because they have a sense of what they can sell it for and cherish. So right. it's kind of a nice circle that we've created and in data to help inform kind of everybody within the marketplace about pricing. It helps buyers to just get a sense, a trust that they're getting a reasonable deal. Yeah. Maybe they're willing to pay a little more because they really love it, but they know they're not paying a crazy, a crazy price. Well, and just a wonderful way for them to get informed yeah. about yeah. right yeah. what all of these products cost right. and, yeah. and get a better sense. It's one of the challenges that the trade industry faces mm -hmm. is that pricing is often hidden mm -hmm. from trade fabrics or trade mm -hmm. upholstery companies. The the consumer mm -hmm. can't really sort of make a direct comparison, and it's mm -hmm. one of the big conversations going on yeah. in the design industry today is how do we sort of let people know that actually an RH sofa, you could get a custom-made sofa with much better construction and mm -hmm. better fabric choices and all of that for relatively the same price. But because the the trade pricing is all sort of hidden away, um, it, it's hard to, to know. 
We're taking a quick break to remind you to register for Dakota's Winter Market, where we'll be on Thursday, February 7th. This season's trade-focused market day, themed Artisans and Innovations, will feature the latest product intros and offer a jolt of New Year inspiration via talks, classes, and networking opportunities with some of the most influential names in design. To kick off the day, Business of Home will be sitting with Nina Campbell for the opening keynote Q&A, which we'll also be recording live for an upcoming episode of the podcast. For more schedule highlights and to register for Winter Market, visit dakota.com. That's D-C-O-T-A dot com. And now, back to the show. So, the issue around pricing is, is, is really interesting. Yeah. And, it, um, and I think that your site has made it possible for people to become much better educated mm-hmm. about what all of this, what, what all of this merchandise is, is really worth. And, and sort of give people um, both an ability to understand how they can incorporate vintage and antique pieces into their into their projects in a, in a way that I think they hadn't really realized before uh, either because they thought it was too expensive and, and therefore sort of wasn't uh, approachable for them um, or this very silly notion about Millennials not wanting brown furniture uh-huh. ever came came along and uh, I, I want to talk about that a little bit because you've got a lot of beautiful brown furniture on your on your site exactly yeah. <laughs> and people are buying it yeah. and um, in so so let's talk about that okay uh, I mean were there were there some notions that, that that people had when you guys were getting started about this business and how it should be done or what people are interested in what what were people saying to you you should you should do when you got started um, well, I think one of the things that we heard, and, and frankly was true, is that there was mid-century mania in mm. the marketplace, and you know it continues to be a really important style category for us, and, and um, we sell tons of it, and we love right. it. Right. Um, but I do think that one of the things that was, um, I think it was always clear to us, but maybe wasn't as well understood, was the, um, especially with, amongst younger shoppers, was the idea of storytelling through their spaces. And in the same way, they didn't want to dress like everyone else and they wanted to have unique um, expression of their personal style through dressing. They want their homes to feel that way too. And it's really hard to do that, picking from catalogs of all new things. And so the idea of incorporating vintage as um, a way of bringing personality and character to your space, which I think is how designers have always thought of vintage and antiques. Right. Um, the embodiment of that in the general consumer population, and particularly with younger shoppers, I think is really um, helpful, frankly, for our business. Um, and, and I think one of the things that people rely upon us for is to bring those character statement-making pieces or the unique art to spaces um, to kind of make it their own. I think there's uh, still, of course, a need for mm-hmm. all of the new stuff, but I think the way that people want to express their style has really evolved. And home as a fashion statement is, um, again, a trend that I think is here to stay and yeah. a way of people thinking about their lives from a design perspective that mm-hmm. maybe didn't exist you know, back in the days when you went and you bought your dining set and you lived with it for 50 years mm-hmm. and never... It's like hermetically right. sealed in your dining room. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that's been important for us. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the other things that's changed since we started Cherish is just the incredible growth of the whole online category of furniture and, and home decor. I mean, in the early days, you know, we did have people who would say, oh, someone's no, no one's ever going to buy a sofa without sitting on it right. first, right? I right. mean, that was the saw. That's why Furniture.com, you know, failed back in 2001. And, yeah. and people kept saying, because people are never going to buy this stuff online. And that's just not, that's just not the case and I think the you mentioned the millennials there there is a whole up-and-coming generation that frankly can't fathom buying anything any other way than than online and so this part of what we view our mission is to help the industry find appropriate ways to transition online because the digitization of design is it's, it's like gravity it's just it isn't our, our belief is it's inevitable it's happening for better or for worse we're not driving that transition we're just a part of it but I think if you believe that it is gravity and it's inevitable then you can start to plan for it you can build tools for it and you can help um, parts of the community who want to you know move in that direction have the tools and services and platforms they need to have a successful business um, online so I think just seeing how quickly the industry's evolved and how now furniture and home decor is the fastest growing e-commerce category. It's just a very different energy around what we're doing than, than there was five or six years ago. Right. And still such a small percentage of furniture transactions yes. are happening online, right? Yeah. Still, still less than 10%. But yeah. the, the thing that I think people don't appreciate that is happening is how much the discovery process starts starts online for both designers and the broader consumer. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot more, well, less than 10% is transacted online, I think the education process is shifting online much, much faster and is a much higher percentage of the total. I mean, that's a hard thing to measure, but the number right. of people who are un getting educated around price, around quality, around uh, options, choices, choices. yeah, yeah. It, 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 that's what happens Unlikes when industries go, go online is people start by discovering, get, getting educa educated, and then transactions are kind of the last piece that move online. So, Well, and so, so earlier on in your career, Greg, when you were building technology companies. Um, when, did, when did you first start your, your, your travel site, for example? Yeah, so Hotwire. We started Hotwire in 99. Uh, okay. So we, we closed our funding in, 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 in 1999. In 1999. Um, yeah, and it was, you know, it was part of that. So, I mean, and I was talking about it, but part of what we're doing is deja vu for me. I mean, it's seeing sure. the seeing the being in the early days of the online migration of home is very much in, in so many levels like um, watching travel move move online. Especially um, when I when I talk to designers and and hear the um, concerns and, and small small and dealers as well, mm -hmm. just concerns about what does this mean for how I make a living, what you know how I how I run my business. It sounds exactly like travel agents in 1999. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, being able to say, we've seen this movie before, there actually is a successful, you know, light, you know, outcome for travel agents. You know, travel agents' business today is very different from what it was in the early days. You, know, you can't make a living selling people round-trip tickets to Boston anymore, but for more complicated trips, more value, you know, if, if you're a... Experiences. If you're someone who can yeah. craft experiences... Um, you can make a great living as a travel agent today. Yeah. So I think, you know, that is, for better or for worse, what is happening with designers. They're having to rethink, you know, what they, where they add value in the process. They clearly do. I mean, a great designer is, a, is, is like an artist. I mean, they're just super talented. Exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a gift. It's not, you know, it's not something everybody can do. Yeah. And I think, um, but how you communicate it, how you charge for it, what the business model is around that, I think those are all the questions that people are wrestling with. But it's, there's no doubt for us that designers, 
even after you know all of this transitional stuff around digital has has kind of played out there's going to be a really important role for interior designers it's going to look different it's than it does today it's going to have to probably use some tools that people aren't necessarily comfortable with today and work with clients in in new ways but there's an absolutely a, an exciting role you know after after this sort of transitional stuff plays out so but that's interesting that having seen as you said you've sort of seen this play out before in other industries so you you saw the the transformation of of travel and how it did all come online um and now i mean it's, it's sort of breathtaking what you can do on mm-hmm. uh, online and you don't need mm-hmm. uh, as you say the, uh, the other thing is once it happens it actually happens fairly quickly i mean yes uh, it's tra- the algor effect it, it's sort of one of those <laughs> when when the industry reaches a tipping point it goes it goes quickly right and i think you know after a long period where it wasn't happening in design it's happening very quickly and you know that that can be exciting because it's an opportunity to solve problems it, it can also be unnerving and, and feel and feel threatening That's so scary. you know yeah. travel went from you know low single digits sold online to over 50 percent in the space of five or eight eight years once it finally started happening and that's kind of it's gone up a little bit from there but it's definitely level, leveled off and kind of found a found a, a, a stable point um, between what people you know call directly to do and what they choose to, to, to do on online right so I think we'll see the same thing in home where it's going to be a very rapid, um, continue to be a very rapid shift in behavior and, and use of technology. And then it will kind of settle, settle out yeah. and people will get more comfortable again. Your vendors seem like real partners for you as well. And some of your competitors, who shall remain nameless to protect the innocent, um, <laughs> are perhaps not as friendly to, to some, of their, some of their vendors. Um, and, and people are very eager to sort of talk to us about that. And mm-hmm. they, they feel that... Um, Perhaps they're um, one of the things that they seem to like about working with with you is that you support their their businesses. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was saying at the be you know beginning of our talk about the relationship between inventory and audience is what we're always looking at um, in marketplace, and so having really strong relationships with the people who provide us with the stuff that stocks the shelves is table stakes. A hundred percent. Right. I also have to say, I enjoy them. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of respect for the small business people, be, being one, who is uh, who are out there, you know, looking for a way to make money and build their business every day. And so it's, um, and I share many of their aesthetic interests. And so it's, it, it's that part has been felt very natural, I think, for us in terms of building that relationship. I also think it's good business. I mean, yeah. I, I just think... Um, we will be more successful as a company if people view us as partners than mm-hmm. as you know monopolists or, or people who are trying to extract value. I mean, I saw that just going back to previous experience. I saw that in the travel industry as well. Expedia was the early leader and was the largest, you know, the biggest destination for selling hotels, and they had extremely high commission rates. They were charging 30 40%, which was really hard for hotels, especially smaller hotels, to yeah. survive. And then Booking.com came along with a much more supplier-friendly um, commission structure and approach to the industry, and today it's by far the largest, um, and it's it's the reason why Priceline, or now Booking Group, is the most valuable travel company. So, I, I mean, for me, I've kind of seen that you know being more industry friendly design community friendly vendor friendly is actually great business and it leads and it's easier it's easier business too in the <laughs> sense of you're not always arguing with people sure i mean sure. it's not that we don't have challenges but it's right. nice if you can so and and how does your commission structure work so 
So it's different between our brands. Okay. We should probably talk about the different ones. Uh, yeah. with, with Cherish, it's free to list. Okay. Uh, it starts at uh, 20, 20% um, for up to $2,500, and then it's a lower commission um, the more expensive the item gets after that. So, it, okay. you know, the top tier is, is basically credit. Anything over uh, $25,000 is basically we charge the credit card fee 3%. Right. But it's, cum- it's cumulative. Okay. Um, on our other, on Dacaso, um, it's a hybrid model where um, Dacaso has a different business where we invite dealers to be a part of that community. We have 320, 330 um, dealers. They pay a flat fee. They can list as many items as they want. And then if they choose to sell it online, use our transactional capability, then we take a lower commission when it when it sells. Okay. So at what point did we decide that Dicasso was a, a natural sort of growth of, of, of the business? Yeah. So Dicasso is our, our second brand. Mm-hmm. Um, we launched it at the beginning of 2017, but it really started probably two years before then when we got approached by um, a handful of dealers who said, we're looking for an alternative to the, to the leading player. And we said, and, and they said, we like what you're doing with Cherish. Initially, we said, "Hey, just join us on Cherish." You know, we've, we've, we're building a, a fun marketplace. We right. want you to be a part of it. And they said, "No, no, no. We really think that our caliber of inventory deserves uh, a separate okay. destination. I see. We need our own. Space. Yeah, we need our own space." Yeah. And okay. after spending probably two years trying to convince them to join Cherish, um, we realized that you know it is it is different. The audience that they are catering to is a little is a little bit different. The price point is can be wildly different mm-hmm. from what you find on Cherish. So. We said if we could get um, enough, uh, 100 dealers to, to pay a membership fee, we would launch a new brand. And so we, we did, and we launched um, Dicasso. So it was a little bit of a Kickstarter-type right. approach. We okay. wanted to see if there really was enough energy in the community and in, in that caliber of, of dealer. And support. And support, yeah. yeah. We didn't want to launch something without believing there was a lot of um, com- industry support for it. So we got 100 dealers. We launched the brand, and it's, and, it's, and it's grown very nicely. I think the world's evolved a lot since we launched it initially some of the things that that group of um, dealers um, really wanted. You know, I think their needs have changed. I think the des- um, their, uh, their target audience, which is the interior design community, um, probably the way they shop has actually evolved even over the last 24 months. And so the, the Dicasso business model has continued to evolve. And But it really is, you know, we think about it as if you're taking the the best stuff. It's like the the, the cherish edit. It's 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 kind of world's finest. Yeah, right. okay. it's the best of the best. Okay, it's the yeah. best of the best. Yeah, and transactionally, what's what's different in how Dicasso works than than cherish? Do you want to speak to that? Or yeah, well, gonna... I mean, it's just it's it's up to the dealer. So okay. Dicasso started. It was not transactional. Right, um, and, and largely at the request of the dealers, really. Yeah. Because they wanted to. That's the way they wanted to interact with the design community. Yeah. And the designers honestly uh, said, we like interacting with the dealers, but at the same time, we want someone to handle shipping and fulfillment and logistics. We want someone, especially if we're working with dealers that we don't know as, mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. we want a, the platform to basically be the person that we call and yell at if something doesn't show, show up on time. And so we have um, added transactional capability to the platform it's up to the dealer to decide whether to to use it or not so if they want to continue to have just that direct um, communication with the um, with the designer or the buyer that's that's fine if they want us to handle the shipping and fulfillment and customer questions on Saturday night and all that kind of stuff um, we're happy to we're happy to do that and they can opt into our transactional program and and, and it's a commission it's a lower commission um, structure at that point okay and also um, as part of that it goes without saying this is true on a lot of platforms, but who the seller is is also visible and um, 
celebrated and clear. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right, a really... Right, which is one of the things that, that really distinguishes you. It was a, yeah, and yeah. that was a really important for, request sure. from the dealer community. And, right. and that's true across all of our platforms is, you know, where it comes from matters. Mm -hmm. and, and we share that. But that also came readily. from personal experience, too. I mean, yeah. watching my dad sell antiquities at the Armory show, you know, 20 years ago, like, it, it's, a, it's a dusty piece of pottery until he tells the story. Right. And then all of a sudden it's a... You know, it, it's a it's a piece that people are willing to pay thousands of dollars for, and so that ability to tell a story, talk about where it came from, how it was made, like just the provenance um, aspect of of antiquities, and 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 that caliber of design is is really important. And I don't think the platform can tell that story in anywhere near the same way as the dealer can. Right. And so knowing and actually knowing, you know, there's certain dealers who are so good at what they do that the piece is actually more valuable if you buy it from that dealer than if you buy it from somebody else. So for us again, it's it's good business to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to share that information. Not not it's the right thing to do. It's also good it's also good business. Well, so recently, the big news starting off 2019 is you've made uh, a big acquisition that people will be familiar with in this audience, Daring Hall. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We're very excited. <laughs> We're to, really excited. To yeah. welcome Peter and the Daring Hall team into the Cherish family. You know, it's it's kind of the culmination of a conversation that's been going on for, for, for quite a while. I mean, we got to know Peter four four or five years ago uh -huh. and um, because you've been going to the the DLN yep. meetings and actually yeah, became I a mean, sponsor there and I think Peter also you know he's having a also a, a technology business within the home industry um, connected with us early on and um, that's just sort of his way mm. you know and yeah. he just came by the office to introduce himself and say what are you guys doing here's what I'm doing and um, we do a lot of that within technology companies, and we have not necessarily always done that with um, other, um, you know, furnishings companies. And so that was really nice. Yeah. And we got to know each other through that, and then later through the DLN. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what really made sense about this acquisition for us was an opportunity to bring um, a new marketplace to life on the site, one that's built around discovery. Um, for new and contemporary product because we've been so f dedicated and focused over the past six years on one-of-a-kind and antique and vintage right. But we all know when you go into someone's space or when you're a designer working the, the palette and is, is much bigger in terms of the types of things that you need and So this was an opportunity for us to really add that whole category of contemporary and newly made pieces um, into our network um, and, and what we can provide to designers and um, home design maniac decorators <laughs> like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it certainly seemed to make sense from the perspective of, uh, so, so much of the design trade talks about how they are more and more moving towards craft. custom and, yeah. and craft. And and that that's, as you were just saying, being able to tell the provenance of, of, of a piece, being able to, to story tell, yeah. uh, which is, I know, is an important aspect of how you look at all mm -hmm. of your, your businesses. Um, but, but also to be able to to tell people that they're getting something exclusively that they're mm -hmm. getting this custom-made piece just for for them yeah yeah I mean I, I think there's really great news in this um, um, joining of forces for all of our important audiences so we're able to say now that cherish Inc the parent company is the is the leading source for high-end vintage 
um, antique and contemporary, you know, with 450,000 items, it really gives us an opportunity to, to create the comprehensive shopping destination that so many of the designers say that they're looking for. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to go for here for this and there for that. And so right. just kind of starting to bring all of that together in a, in a seamless experience is, is really exciting for designers. You know, it's similar for sellers, um, for brands or, or, or dealers, you know, being able to, you know, list on one place and have your product show up where you want it to is one of the biggest challenges that we hear from from that from that community. And so, you know, it just seemed like there's a lot of um, benefits of, of kind of joining. It, it, it expands the market opportunity for, for us as well. We think we've got a really exciting business in the um, antique and one-of-a-kind space, being able to think about more broadly about the whole high end of the home market um, is kind of an exciting new front, kind of front frontier for us as, a, as yeah. a company. So, And I think beyond the practicalities of everything we just talked about, it also felt like from a value standpoint, Peter's somebody who obviously has, and DLN's a great example of that, right. a big commitment to fostering the health and the longevity of the design community. Um, both from interior designers, but also from all the manufacturers who, who help make it possible and suppliers, So um, as do we. And so there was sort of a visions and values alignment as mm. well that made it feel like the right fit culturally too. So, so a big, a big jump or, or, or a meaningful jump, I guess, in your, in your inventory, as you were saying, yeah. I mean, 450,000 pieces. I mean, that, that's, that's an, that's an enormous inventory. Mm -hmm. and, and as you say, sort of puts you in a leading position there in this, in this category, mm -hmm. right? The right pieces. Yeah. It's not yeah. just everything, but kind of in that high end yeah. space. So the curation aspect continues to be a super important and the brands that Daring Hall works with are a good fit, a really complimentary, great fit. Yeah, super yeah. complimentary. Our approach. Yeah. And your and your trade database becomes quite large as yeah. as well. So yeah. to tell me about tell me about that. They're so now our trade community um, will be around twenty thousand, and growing from there. Um, as Greg mentioned, Cherish launched our trade program, uh, relaunched it meaningfully about a year ago, and mm -hmm. so it's been growing like wildfire. Um, and um, this will really help to augment that. And that's just such an important customer base for us. That, that was another opportunity that um, this joining of forces presented. So that was cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah. scale just allows you to solve problems in new ways. You know, we talked about how we use scale to solve problems on the shipping front. I think having a scale with a, a designer community allows you to start to think about solutions to problems that either they have now or we see coming down coming down the, the pike you can mm -hmm. just start to make investments that are hard to make if you're working with a relatively small group of people and the same thing with the with the brands when you're working with so many brands you can start to think about solutions to problems um, and investing in ways that um, meet bigger bigger needs so that's you know I think the immediate opportunity with Daring Hall is simply to share um, d design lists where you know you can now more easily navigate from one of our brands to the other um, we'll cross list some of the some of the inventory to create a more a, a richer shopping destination mm -hmm. on, on on Daring Hall and that's a great starting point because just a broader selection is sort of what the market's looking for now right but I think longer term thinking about how do you use technology to go beyond the tear sheet and, and solve problems for the community is really the exciting part and that's what we'll be exploring with um, the Daring Hall team kind of later this year. 
Okay, so it sounds like we're, we're very much keeping Daring Hall in place as is. It's it's going to be a, a, a Daring Hall tab that's going to live on the Cherish site, and all mm-hmm. all of you will share these three tabs. It sounds mm-hmm. like yes, Cherish and Dicasso and Daring Hall. And it's kind so, of like when this is sort of the Williams Sonoma approach. Yeah, Williams Sonoma and some of the other brands. Right. Um, it's it's a great starting point. Absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, I think Daring Hall plays a. With its focus on interior designers, it, it it has an opportunity to play a very different role than Cherish and Dicasso or other brands. Right. And we don't want to lose that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that Daring Hall seems to have positioned itself as uh, certainly at the very at the very high mm-hmm. end of the of the market and yeah. really very established and successful designers through, mm-hmm. throughout the throughout the country. And um, really, I, I'm sure there's a, a lot of benefit from from being with that closer to that community. Why did you succeed when so many others failed in this space? Um, well, boy, that's a longer conversation. I, I, I don't know. I think there's a few things that we were fortunate to focus on early that have really pl- played out. Have I mentioned all the behind-the-scenes He's investments? He's doing a lot of work behind-the-scenes, <laughs> people, but, if you're not aware. Uh, I think that's one thing. I, I also think you know, there's this whole Silicon Valley blitz-scaling philosophy where you've got to go big, don't care about you know operational efficiency until you're at scale and right. and that's just been the road to ruin for many companies in the home space if right. you didn't make these investments early on the wheels fell off your cart and right. you kind of collapsed you exploded, you exploded. and I don't want to yeah. I don't want to name any names but we can all think sure. of companies who've had these bottle rocket trajectories where they were out of the gate they were incredibly big and successful and then 18 months later they're gone and I think we've taken a more sort of slow and steady approach to building the business. It's just kind of mm-hmm. partly because we're... I think we're, it fits better with the pacing of the industry, too. Well, and it's also kind of like, who, we, who, we, who we are. Who, who yeah. we are. Um, and so making those investments along the way so that we were in a position to take the next step without the wheels coming off the bus has been, has been really helpful. So it means we haven't had quite the same explosive trajectory of, of growth, but right. it also gives me confidence that we're also not going to have the backside of that and um, flame, flame out down the road. I mean, we'll see ultimately how big the business gets, but it's a it's a real business, and we can see, you know, doing this for quite a long time and having a lot of fun along <laughs> along the way. Yeah. Well, and, and you don't seem super focused on the, the end game, whether it's going public or selling this for, you know, 400 yeah. times what you put into it. I mean, that doesn't seem to be what's driving you, or, or even seeing Seeking out the next round of venture capital. I mean, I know you've raised what, like thirty million dollars, roughly. I mean, to, you don't yeah. seem hungry for you know the next well, round. I, I mean, it, you tell me. We, 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 I don't want to say we're not ambitious, but at the same time, I think this is something that we actually really enjoy doing. And, right. You know, I think it's something we could see we ourselves like working on it together. Yeah, it's, it's kind fun. of a fun yeah. project. Yeah, and so you know, we, I have. You know, we've been fortunate to to do those things in other at other times in in my life, and this mm-hmm. is this is one time where I think we could do this for a long time, and no no rush to to make anything happen. And, and there's so much opportunity so early. Like it's just, I think the next five or eight years are going to be really exciting time to be building a business in the in the home space. And and do you see because you've built these capabilities now? Do you see being able to expand this into into other areas of the of the home space now that you've sort of figured a lot of things out and are there other markets that you think are interesting not outside of home that we that we think about but there's other certainly there's other services within the home space i mean when when things are happening so quickly when things are changing so quickly i mean the hardest part in building a successful business is saying no mm. <laughs> to, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a kind of johnny appleseed there's always new ideas that come come in and so i think one of the other things that we have been good at is just focusing on the few things that really matter and just trying to say we're not going to do something new until we 
kind of get this to a place where it's where it's right. Right. It's and hard. It's a lot, there's a lot of tempting ideas. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure. So yeah. I, I, I'm sure. I, so I mean, a, a lot of people probably want to talk to you, and and right. And oh, we love we love talking. We okay. Love, we, we want to talk to everybody. Um, okay. I, I think that you know the the Deering Hall acquisition is a big step for us. Right. You know, that's going to keep us busy for a while. It opens up this opportunity in contemporary and providing more services to the design community. I don't see us doing a lot. Because that's in addition to everything we're doing with Cherish and Dacasa. Sure. Like, we're going to have our hands full for, yeah, absolutely. for, for the most, near term. For the yeah. near term. But longer term, sure. I mean, it's exciting to think about all the problems you can solve. I think we've got a great technology team. We've got a great group of relationships with designers and brands. And, you know, bringing all those things together to, to launch new services makes total sense. And that's why this is fun. Well, it's very exciting. Um, congratulations on the Daring Hall acquisition. That's Thank fantastic. You. Congratulations on the continued success of Cherish and, and Dacasso. And I'm, I'm delighted that we got to talk to you. So thank you for coming in. Thank Thanks. you for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.